The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy. Welcome, Murder Bookies, to a special minicast, episode 45. I wanted to do something a little different to listen and to learn from you. So I am speaking with one of you, a Murder Bookie, whose opinion I value greatly, that of Murder Bookie, Rebecca Ray Catalfu. Listening to this podcast from the beginning, Rebecca is incredible. And in our conversation, we got into many issues, some from Bone Deep, but that's not all. We got into discussing the whys, we like true crime, other cases and books that I've covered. And I hope you'll enjoy a candid conversation with someone that I believe validly represents you. I think we shared some truths, some insights, and have an exchange that is entertaining, if not profound. Whoa, I am setting a high bar there. So sit back and enjoy as Rebecca and I reflect and share. So Murder Bookie Rebecca Ray Catalfio is joining us today to talk about what she thought of the Bone Deep and the murder of Bessie Faria. Oh, I'm so glad you're here with me. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. I'm flattered and so excited. This is the first time I've had the opportunity to meet you in person, even though we corresponded for a while and love the show. And I was really excited about this book. It had received so much media attention. And there's a lot that's there as far as me on the bone to get in there and really talk about. So I'm excited to delve in. Well, as we're going to see, usually I do the three episodes. This one is four episodes. I saw. Yes. Yeah. It's just so complicated. And there was so much there. Not wanting to forget about Betsy and then later Lewis. And these right. victims, and then how Russ is victimized, and it was just too much. And Shirley, you know, her mom. Yes. Right. You can't believe I'm in the world of true crime, but I was not familiar with this case before I found the book. Oh, wow. Like, really? How did I miss this? <laughs> well, I'm such a huge Dateline person. You know, I really do follow that show on TV, and so... Seeing it there first and then actually getting to do a deeper dive into the actual prosecutorial case and the evidence gathering as such. And then how it's just really coalesced into everything else. Well, the TV show and then getting Renee Zellweger, who I think nailed the performance. Oh, yeah. She's fantastic. You know, and then having Russ and Joel at CrimeCon, yeah, meeting everybody, I was just so honored that they would even sit down with me. You know how many podcasters want to do interviews? Wow, that was, you know, that was just so kind of them. And I'd go so far to say they have become friends. Oh, wow. Really been nice. That's awesome. Yeah. That is really nice. Yeah. They seem like very, very down earth and very interesting people. And wow, do they really have a story and an experience to share. 
that not many people have experienced. Yeah. You know, a lot of times in true crime, we don't get the ending. Exactly. We don't know who the murderer is. Right. You know, we don't know where the body is. And here, the ending isn't even the ending. No, no, it really isn't. You know, I, so many times I was pinching myself reading this book saying, are we in the upside down right now? How can they not see this? This is so opposite of reality. How are we all the way over on the complete other side of reality right now? In true crime, we want the bad guys caught. So you're eager to find this murderer. Absolutely. The book is written by the defense attorney. So I'm sure it's done in the way it's done. But remember, I hadn't watched the Dateline stuff. I really don't know how I missed it, but I did. And here I'm reading this book and I'm like, all right, this is from the defense's perspective. Right. And then I'm like, what? What? Right. No, that's, you can't, you did rigor mortis, it's two to three hours. That whole body spasm. Yeah. Cadaveric spasm. That had never even seen that they are trying to make a plausible. There's no way to determine if that actually happened, but they want this guy. It has to have happened. That is not the way you investigate a murder. Oh, so many times I'd put the book down and say, I need to really just let this go and come back with fresh eyes. <laughs> In a little bit. I kept saying I threw the book across the room, but I, I really did. I mean, it's not a mess. It I was hurling the book across the room, just huffing and walking out the door. My husband's like, right. are, are you okay? And I'm like, book, just book. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. You're having fun. I think that's me having fun. <laughs> and not to compare you know, traumas or situations or tragedies, but really they could have got the right person the first time and Lewis would still be here. Yeah. Not that all of it is sad, but especially having just experienced a mild brain trauma injury myself and knowing how vulnerable you feel Mm -hmm. in your recovery around people you don't know and this Poor man. Is it my understanding he was hurt in a car accident? Is that right? In 2005, he was in a car accident and was badly injured, as was the other gentleman. And, you know, was really on the level about a 12-year-old. Right. And he had two children. He was then having to live with his mom. You know what is really tragic about this? He was killed on the 16th of August. Mm -hmm. The next day, he had a job interview. Oh, my gosh. So as a mom, that happens to one of your kids, and then you're having to take care of him and his kids, and then this happens, you yeah. know, cringy feelings. There was a program that works with disabled people, mm-hmm. and he had been applying and asking for a job because he wanted to work. He wanted to be productive. He wanted to contribute. He, even with the brain damage, Lewis was in there. You want to feel worthwhile and you want to feel valuable and you want to feel like you can help because you don't want people doing everything for you all the time. And that's the just the sickening part about it is he thought, oh, this is great. I can make money for my kids. Yeah, his mom said that. She said if he was hearing this, he would want to take care of his family, pay off some bills. And that's why he would probably have been attracted to doing something like that. Right. I have to say, I mean... I really do try not to sit in judgment, but here there were so many people that had to screw up so badly for this to happen this way. Right. It's kind of like the flight of the airplane. You have seven checks that are done by multiple people. You know, I hate people saying, oh, the system failed, but it's so egregious. And then 
they try to make right as best they can, you know, and the prosecutor is hiding behind. Prosecutorial. Was, my gosh, so infuriating. So infuriating. When I watched the uh, Keith Morrison interview with the prosecutor, we got to see her brain in motion and to see the thoughts and her catching herself repeatedly and thinking about her answer. You can really tell. And this is her trying to make a good impression and win over hearts and minds. Right. Full disclosure, I don't like her. Leah Askey Janey, I don't like her. I don't like people who play the victim card. She kept repeatedly saying, it's been so hard for me. It's been so hard for my family. I wish I'd never run for prosecutor. I wish... I know. What about the people that aren't here that you were supposed to protect? What about the guy who lost his whole family and was in jail for three years? You know, she's had a hard time. And I do have empathy. Yes, she has put herself in a really bad situation. And that interview with Keith Morrison, she did not dig herself out. No, it definitely showed the light of day on the thought process. It wasn't victim blaming. It was more she was just seeing it from her perspective as how it had affected her. And it really bothers me when people say, oh, but I did my job. That's not my job. Even in the working world. I've worked since I was in high school, you know, I'm 45 now and I've had multiple jobs at the same time. That is kind of my pet peeve when it comes to work is, oh, well, that's not my job. How is not your job? It was your job. Then she dug in and prosecuted him again. Made up stuff. And you remember she said he had a girlfriend and she was pregnant and she was, oh. was doing all this behind Betsy. That, that just wasn't true. Right. And that's the part where I was thinking, are we in the upside down? Because... Eight sperm is now him raping his yes. All four of these people are bad people because they smoke pot and play Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games. You know, just playing into that prejudice of that whole satanic panic back in the 80s and early 90s. Are we starting the satanic panic again? Are we going to go smashing yes. role-playing right. games as being the things of Satan? Like, good Lord. You know, all four of those people and that she never interviewed any of them. And she just ended it at the end like it was a fact. Yeah. And here's what happened. And the jury's like, okay. I did look up and see what the jury had to say. And they were, a number of them, I can't speak for all, but they were very upset. They said, you know, we're not talking about parking tickets here. And, you know, we're talking a man's life, life in prison. He said, sure. how could you not tell us everything? The truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth, but we didn't get it. You held right. back from us. How do you do that? So I think this is an education. First, for people to understand, you have a right to have an attorney. Mm-hmm. That's your constitutional right. This is not something the government gave us. We created, we the people created this constitution. You have a right, right to an attorney, and that is not an indicator of guilt. It is not. And you can't be used that way. If you take a polygraph, you can ask for a copy of the results. And if they can't produce one, and they didn't tell you it's a faux polygraph? That's a faux. Oh, my God. That right there. And then the luminol pictures that never, quote, unquote, developed, but then showed up just in time for the second trial. Uh, and they were anonymously. God bless whoever broke onto Joel Schwartz did try to find out who sent them to him anonymously, and he was not successful. And I understand it. I mean, at this point, I would just kind of throw my head down. I would have given them the, in the first trial. I'm going to withhold evidence. But I understand someone wanting to remain anonymous at this point because it was such a high pressure 
you know, significant case. But thank you. Thank you. They saw justice was not done. And whatever else was going on, they did the right thing because that is just disgraceful. I am so glad the new prosecutor, Mike Wood, is investigating all of this. Oh, my gosh. What a powerful press conference. Just right to the point. His team looks very serious as far as getting to the bottom of exactly who did what when. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing about justices is is it can't prepare all the damage done, but at least you can keep it from happening to somebody else at the hands of the same people. Right. And that's what we always strive for and what we want to see. And I think part of the pull to true crime is you want to know why so that you can figure out how to protect and avoid it yourself in the future. You know, have this woman seemingly charm all of these people into doing her bidding, you know? Yeah. She just manipulated everybody. Because let's face it, the statistics do show you in a murder, it is usually, you know, the husband, sorry guys, but it's usually the husband or the spouse, let's put it that way. The closest, the circle. Right, inner circle. But give me a break. You don't just make up stuff in order to fit your theory. You go where the evidence takes you. Right, the whole confirmation bias. And the sunk cost policy. Oh, well, we put so much into it now, we can't turn back, right? And the group think. Right. Do you remember in the Bike Path Killer book? Oh, my gosh. What another one. Right. Yeah, that was a tough one. I have to say, I've been very pleased with my more recent selections of books. Oh, I love all of them. (laughs) That one was was rough. Anthony Capozzi was the guy who was arrested for some of the bike path rapes that he did not commit. It's 20 years later. He set up this task force. They're finding this this serial killer rapist, and they realize and connect the dots between these rapes that Capozzi's been in prison for 20 years for. Now they realize wrongfully convicted. Fortunately, they were able to find some DNA and they could exonerate him. Do you remember what the judge said who sentenced Capozzi? She apologized profusely. She apologized to him. She apologized to the family. She apologized to justice that she had done wrong. She said, I only had the information I had at the time. I wish they'd run the DNA because it would have exonerated him. If you do remember, two of the victims had identified Capozzi, who unfortunately did look somewhat like Altimio Sanchez, the guy who actually did it. Right. And when you're in trauma and the adrenaline's rushing, and we all know, being good murder bookies, that eyewitness testimony, sometimes your eyes deceive you and it's hard. You know, and it's not on purpose. You think you're doing right. But yeah. But here, the judge is falling over herself, apologizing. The police are the ones who went and found the DNA to exonerate him. To overturn a conviction, you need DNA. So they literally hunted down from 20 years earlier to find if there were rape kits still in existence, if the slides exist. This is law enforcement correcting it. Law enforcement was doing this. Versus... Here we are in Russ's case, and they're doubling down on this is the guy. And it's like, at some point, isn't there a glimmer there that this went badly and maybe we should just drop it and admit we made a mistake? I think that that's, you know, one of those things that you got to own your work and you have to own what you did and not in the way of, you know, passing the buck and throwing other people under the bus. I mean, she really threw the police under the bus there and wanted to come back to bite her later when they came out and told the truth. 
you know, the three separate people that came out and told the truth that are in law enforcement about her asking them to lie on the stands. That is not going to go well. I mean, you're going to see the part about the destruction of evidence order as well. You know, thank God they still had that evidence for the bike path killer so that they could make right. Yes. So it was 20 some years later. I mean, could you imagine if the evidence order had gone in effect as far as destroying the evidence? Do you remember who signed that order? Captain Mike Merkel's wife. Signed the order for the destruction. Uh huh. Of the evidence. Yep. Now, she didn't have a, any interest in that outcome there. Not. What does that tell you? And I'm sure it's going to be, oh, I was just doing my job. That was my job. I was supposed to, you know, fill out the paperwork. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's something going on in that department, in that office. You know, the nice thing about a task force is it's usually different organizations coming together for a common good and a yes, common goal. exactly. Right? Yes. And so you don't have that nepotism, the group think, the protects and our theory at all costs will look like idiots on our first murder case. Right. Fresh eyes, too. They come in and then you have to convince each other of a theory. Well, you're still going to use the evidence to do that. And there's more than one supervisor department, even though there's usually someone running the task force. Right. And you, you are following the evidence and you're not following what or who you think did it. I mean, a lot of the smaller mistakes absolutely you can chalk up to inexperience. You know, you can really see the whole bias, even in the interviews with Pam, as far as she's acting as though she is quite wealthy, comes from money. You can tell from her demeanor and her body language sitting back in the chair that she's really in charge of the conversation. They defer to her. You know, she's referring to Betsy and her family as Hoosiers, which is a term of, you know, countryfied, unintelligent people creating a, a us and them sort of feeling. And then as this drug addicted wife cheater who plays these fantasy games like D&D. Dressed look like Yoda or something while they're doing, yeah. you know, killing lights. Right. <laughs> that this was the ultimate campaign. They'd all gotten together and concocted this campaign to kill Betsy because it was the ultimate game, you know, and it's just demented. For teenagers, or are we actually prosecuting a case with evidence and facts, you know? Yeah. And what I wow. thought really amazing that here now Russ is exonerated. He's out of jail. And now the attention turns back to Pam. And here she comes up with this convoluted plot that's going to put the attention back on Russ because now he's tried to murder her with an accomplice that, oh, she was forced to defend herself and fight to the death and shoot this man. And of all the people in the world, she runs into Carol, who is a savvy woman. Let's talk about trust your gut murder, Bookie. Uh-huh. That's what I said. You were born a murder, Bookie. Exactly. Really did. People said to her, like, why did you get in the car? Why did you get in the car? And she said to me, just something was going on here. I wanted to right. see what it was. She needed to get to the bottom of that. Let me tell you who needs a private investigator's license right now. <laughs> just said, Carol, you got some natural instincts going here. He really does. I mean, I thought she was just so brave, so incredible. And what a thing for on her feet to say, oh, I left my keys at home and I need to go back. Yeah. Right. I'm telling you, she's so intelligent, so savvy and a huge heart. Now, isn't she with Russ now? They're engaged. Wow. I'm so wow, isn't that them? I mean, I feel like it came full cycle and 
This started with him losing his wife and then going through sheer hell. And then you come out the other end of it. He's starting to rebuild his life and meets this remarkable woman who is grounded. She is not after him for his money. She's just such awesome, fun people. And I'm so glad they found each other in this world. That's great. They are a freaking awesome couple. The interview with Russ and Carol, it's also with Mary Anderson. That his cousin? She is the cousin. She's the one that found Mr. Schwartz, right? Yes. She had worked as, I guess, a legal assistant for Mr. Beanie, who was an attorney. I can't think of his first name. And he was the first lawyer that went in and said, no, he's leaving. You know, he's coming with me and, you know, gets Russ away from the police. And then he was charged like six days later. And then Joel will come into the picture. She has some interesting things to say about what she observed. Because, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I want to know the story. I want to know the evidence. I want to know how the police and everything worked. But anytime you can get insight into the family, how they were told, what happened there, I think that's important. I think it helps other families reflect, too, that this really is a family tragedy. You know, we've got Dateline all over the place and, and TV shows and all that. But this really comes back to this nugget of a family that had to right. suffer through this. And right. sharing some of those insights on how things affected them and what happened, I think, was really critical. And not just one family. This is this is spiraled out to include other families. You know, it's Betsy's family. It's mm-hmm. it's Russ's family. It's Mr. Gumpenberger's family. And, you know... Yep. I don't know how much Pam's family had to do with it, but I mean, her mom ended up... Two kids who can't be with their mother either. Right? I have no idea what Travis and Sarah are thinking, but it's not good. It, no. I'm sure that there's, there's going to be some negative blowback on them, and they don't deserve that. Right. And it's a small town, you know, yeah. sure where it's, you know, people know each other and people talk and say things. You know, having grown up in a small town, I can understand how uncomfortable that is and what it's like to have something like that just happen, but it really just pulls at the fabric of the whole community. But yeah, it definitely is a family situation that is one that no one wants to experience. I hope that people are being more compassionate, that it wasn't Travis or Sarah's fault. They're going through a trauma. They're going through all this publicity. And people can be terrible. I hope people are stepping it up a little bit with a little bit more compassion in their heart. And maybe right. you mention it, that people will think that way. Well, right. Think before you type on social media. <laughs> never never write anything on social media when you are mad. Yes. I could not add and drunk. But either way, <laughs> just, just don't do it. Walk away. <laughs> Listen to a podcast. Yes. Read a book. Yeah. There are many. There are many. And I'm excited for the next one as well. I'd already started that one too, so. Oh, that's... That's another story, and I feel it's incomplete, but it's, again, a convoluted story. Serial killer, Israel Keys. The whole childhood psychology that this book really gets into is quite fascinating. You know I loved it. I mean, I just was limited to every page. I mean, that's my thing. Where do you want to go after that? What do you suggest? Wow. You know, having grown up, in the LDS community, and I'm no longer a practicing member, this whole Chad Daybell, Lori Vallow situation, I know nobody's written a book, but somebody's going to write an amazing book about that. I have a feeling it's underway. They're waiting on files. 
Right. I mean, The Under Banner of Heaven is kind of in the same vein. as It's a great book. I read that a long time ago, but of course they have the miniseries now too. But that was really interesting. But I always like when we have a book that has just a story that you really didn't even know that much about until, you know, this book came out about it. Yes. And I have so many that I could think of. <laughs> it's hard. It really is hard. Hard. It's hard. And you've had so many classics. I remember the first one I think I listened to was the Lizzie Borden. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My mom actually sat down and read that whole book after the podcast. I never got through the whole book because it was so, so dense at the time. I was doing a lot of other things. But, and the list. Oh, yeah. He just keeps moving on, right? That we hope for an ending in that, but it just keeps progressing. I think I love Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter's podcast on the Long Island Serial Killer. I think they use the name Unraveled and they cover different cases under that. But this was the last oh, okay. You know, I am not an investigative reporter. Right. But they can delve into and go interview and get access to way beyond the book, which is why right. so often I do the, a mini cast update on anything that has come out. Yeah. Or sometimes I'll just work it into the beginning of a, a new book. But that's what's hanging on, hanging on. I hope they can get out of the way of their own investigation gone sideways. And that's why I really like the the vein and the thread and the focus of this podcast is because it's something that I've always been interested in as far as, you know, true crime and the why. And it focuses on the reading of the actual book and the story and the author and you kind of get to see where they were and how they were thinking. And it's my book club that I can have at any time. Right. It's my book club that I don't have to make sure I'm free Tuesday at six o'clock every week for. Exactly. It fits into my schedule and I can still have that feeling of community and still have that feeling of really great story and those extra nuggets, you know, of the second cast at the end of, you know, where are they now and the updates that we get. And so, you know, I really enjoy that that part of the of the focus of this podcast because it is so different from some of the other ones out there. Or not that the other ones out there aren't interesting, but I feel like they're only almost their own animal as far as, you know, the investigation piece and, and getting involved in, in all that. That's a whole different animal than what you try to do here. Light to the author and, and, and their process. Because it's not easy putting together a true crime book. Oh, right? no. Oh, my gosh, no. It's really a complicated subject. And then when I do it, I try to find like the book on the case. There's yeah. so many. You really fall down the rabbit hole and like you said, go sideways or go to the upside down. <laughs> yeah. For every book I do, I've probably read five books. How do I evaluate which ones the book I really got the most out of if I don't read the five books or at least three or four, but usually about five books on the subject. If there are, some aren't, like that's the two books, but I read both of them to decide which one I wanted, the way I wanted to approach it. I have the greatest respect for authors. It's an overwhelming task just to put a couple scripts together. Right. (laughs) I can't even imagine trying to figure out how to sort through which quotes. And if you don't have time to read, please listen to me. But if you do have time to read, please listen to me. (laughs) You need to really pick up the book. Right. And it's great because you get that book list. You know, I'm always on Google saying, 
New York Times bestseller list looking for that next thing to read. And so this has been a reliable way of finding that next good book, right? That I know it's coming and I can't wait for it. I love everything by Ann Rule. She's so well-produced. And I mean, we really miss her in the true crime community. I know I'm not the only one. I'm not. It was just amazing, especially her work on the Diane Downs case is still one of my my favorites. And the other one was the Deborah Green case. Really liked her updates that she would update her books with more information later. I always appreciate that. I really enjoyed her work on those. And she was probably my first true crime author that I actually really read. Daniel probably was up there with my first books. I had always been attracted to these kinds of stories and wanted to know more about them. And I grew up in the era of the serial killers. There was always another one popping up almost weekly. Oh, some Sam's running around New York. (laughs) You know, just constantly. I think, I want to say, I can think Anne Roll is probably up there in the top few first books that I started with. Leslie Roll is is her daughter and doing some work too. And she's also remarkable. I read, I think it was called Tangled Web. I read that one. That one was very good. My boyfriend always jokes. He's like, I always know, you know, if you're having a hard time because you haven't read five books that week, you know. <laughs> but having had the head injury and not being able to read was really, you know, a struggle for me just to kind of open the window a little bit and share as from my head injury, I was actually not able to read for several months, although letters would jumble together. So for someone who really enjoys reading, avid bookworm. That's a deprivation. Yeah. Have your podcast was such a blessing because I knew I said, it's Jill. She's there. I'm going to get a yummy treat description. <laughs> I'm going to hear about some wine I can't have, but God bless. At least, you know, I'm going to get a story. So I, I thank you for that. You really helped me with my recovery. Oh my gosh. You're so welcome. I'm so glad to hear that. I hope there's other people out there who do the same thing. If, you know, I was hoping not for a tragic reason, you know, an accident or something, but just being in the car, you know, I'm like, Oh, well, Jill's in the car. It'll be okay. <laughs> I'm riding along with you. That's yeah. wonderful to hear. Thank you for saying that. Rebecca, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Jill. I hope I was able to share, bring a little light and some humor, horrible story. When do you laugh when you're doing true crime? Well, when it happens, right. that's when you laugh. Right. Live life yeah. while you're remembering. Right. Humor just to just to cope and survive and not to make light of anyone's tragedy or entertainment of anyone's story. I feel like the reason that most of us are interested in these types of stories is the human interest side and the wanting to make sure that things are done right and to avoid getting hurt or anyone we care about getting hurt. Definitely, everybody, you know, be kind. Listen to your gut. Burger bookies. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, Jill. I hope to see you later. Okay. Take care. Well, that concludes this special minicast, episode 45, with murder bookie Rebecca Ray Catalfo. I really hope you enjoyed it and maybe came across a new idea or a different perspective, something that you hadn't thought of before. I thoroughly loved every minute and was happy to let you hear from someone besides me for a change. I really want to say thank you to Rebecca for having this conversation, for opening herself up and sharing her ideas. I think it's been stellar. And listen, guys, my daughter's wedding was beautiful. We had perfect weather. It was pure joy. And my happiness for her and my new son-in-law is overflowing. I am utterly exhausted. 
So as I said last episode, I will be taking a little time off from the podcast to recover and rejuvenate. I'll be back in a few weeks, I promise, and with a gusto and a new episode on my next book, which is, drumroll, American Predator by journalist Maureen Callahan. I do love the serial killer stories that twist and turn. This one is frightening. For 14 years, Israel Keyes was one of the most ambitious and terrifying serial killers in modern history, and he went largely unnoticed flying under the radar. Described by a prosecutor as a force of pure evil, Keyes was a predator who struck all over the United States, where he buried kill kits, cash, weapons, body disposal tools, in remote locations across the country. Terrifyingly, he abducts his victims in broad daylight and kills and disposes of them in mere hours. And then he'd return home to Alaska, resuming the life as a quiet, reliable construction worker devoted to his only daughter. Chilling, terrifying story. Thank you for listening. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. And follow me or subscribe to my show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, anywhere that you might listen to a podcast. Let my episode pop right into your feed. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material is always found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbach. Up a little closer, love mine. God, up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love from head.